0: want to position yourself for career success, master the fundamentals of business with HBX Core, a three-course online program developed by Harvard Business School faculty. Immerse yourself in real-world case studies as you dive into business analytics, economics for managers, and financial accounting, the three courses that Harvard Business School faculty determined were essential to becoming fluent in the language of business. Boost your resume, grow your network, and advance your career with the HBX Core credential from HBX and Harvard Business business school. Just go to about hbx.com/howstuffworks. Once again, that's about hbx.com/howstuffworks. Are you looking for brand new episodes of a short How Stuff Works podcast that explains the everyday world around us? Then check out Brain Stuff with me, Christian Sager. New episodes hit every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're talking about a story that has three totally distinct parts. Uh, the first part we're going to talk about is that in January of 1700, a tsunami struck the coast of Japan. And this is a tsunami that's really well documented in records and maps and art from the time period. And by this point, the people of Japan knew that tsunamis could follow earthquakes. And especially when it came to domestic tsunamis, where both the tsunami and the earthquake that caused it happened there in Japan, people had a really clear sense that when an earthquake struck, a tsunami could follow But sometimes an earthquake spawns a tsunami that makes landfall somewhere really far away. And since instantaneous communication over thousands of miles is an incredibly recent invention, uh, connecting these foreign tsunamis to the earthquakes that spawn them is really the work of later scientists. After an earthquake in Chile in 1960 spawned a tsunami that struck Japan, a worker at a weather station figured out that tsunami that had struck Japan in 1687, 1730, and 1751 had come from Peru and Chile. This 1700 tsunami continued to be a mystery for another 30-plus years, though. It became known as the Orphan Tsunami, and that tsunami, the earthquake that caused it, And how people finally figured out which was which are what we are talking about today.
0: So the first written record of a tsunami in Japan is from the year 684. An earthquake struck the province of Toza, now known as Kochi. Afterwards, quote, the province of Toza reported that a great tide rose and caused many of the ships conveying tribute to sink and be lost. The word
1: tsunami wasn't coined until later, though. It combines the character tsu, which means harbor, and nami, which means wave. Uh, Its first use in writing is from 1612, to describe one that struck on December 2nd of 1611, roughly four hours after an earthquake off the coast of Japan. This tsunami
0: was disastrous, killing thousands and thousands of people. And from there, the word tsunami made its way into English in the late 1800s. By the 1950s, it had become one of the few Japanese loanwords in the English language's physics lexicon. This known connection between earthquakes
1: and tsunami was so solid in the 18th century in Japan that when the 1700 tsunami struck, most of the people writing about it didn't actually call it a a tsunami. Instead, almost all of the surviving written records use words like high tide, flood, high water, and unusual seas. The headman of the village of Miho did wonder in his records whether it was a tsunami, which is something that he spelled out phonetically rather than using the Japanese character for tsunami. So it's probably a word that he had heard but didn't know how to write. Uh, But he clearly seems puzzled at whether this could have been a tsunami since there had not been an earthquake beforehand.
0: And we have lots of writing from lots of different people about this particular tsunami. In 1700, Japan was about 100 years into the Tokugawa period, also called the Edo period. And this was the nearly 250-year span of relative peace and stability under the rule of the Tokugawa shogunate. If you want a bit more detail about the Tokugawa and the culture of the Edo period, there is a lot more about it in our past podcast on Hokusai. During this period,
1: literacy was pretty widespread among social classes, and the culture of governmental bureaucracy meant that there were a lot of records being kept about basically everything. Records of the tsunami survive in the paperwork of the daimyo or the feudal lords, uh, as well as the merchants and people of the peasant class who were basically leaders in their individual villages.
0: The tsunami reached Japan on January 27th, 1700, or in the Japanese calendar, the eighth day of the 12th month of Genroku 12. The path of the tsunami arced from the northeast to southwest down Japan's coast, striking Kuwagasaki in the north, first on the 27th, close to midnight, and then moving south until it reached Tanabe the following morning. All the surviving written records come from towns and villages on the island of Honshu, which is Japan's largest island, and was also home to the capital city of Edo, which is today Tokyo. So we're going to walk down the path the
1: tsunami took from north to south, and it started, at least according to the records, in the fishing village of Kuwagasaki, which is on the northwest edge of Miyako Bay. The tsunami struck in the middle of the night without any warning, and although the people who were living there were able to escape to higher ground and no one was injured, the combination of floodwaters and fires destroyed about 10% of the town's 300 houses. The water itself was responsible for the destruction of 13 homes. The records from Kuwagasaki are the only ones to conclusively use the word tsunami to describe the 1700 flood.
0: Officials in the neighboring town of Miyako, which was also the administrative seat for Kuwagasaki and other villages in the area, started a relief effort. And in the following days, stipends of rice were distributed to 159 people who had been affected by the tsunami. And officials in Miyako also requested allotments of low-grade wood so that they could build temporary shelters.
1: The tsunami waters traveled all the way through Miyako Bay. Uh, damaging and destroying structures along the coast, and ev- eventually reaching the village of Sugaruishi, which was a kilometer inland, and this caused a panic among, among the people who were living there. Because of the shape of the bay, which funneled the water into a relatively narrow space, the crest of the tsunami was probably the highest here,
0: about 5 meters or 16 feet the records at Sugaruishi don't mention the word tsunami, but they do mention the absence of an earthquake. And also, due to a clerical error, these records also misrecord the date by a full month.
1: Yeah, there was this and one other thing that both were like, "Oops, we just—they just noted the wrong, the wrong date there." Continuing south in the port of Otsuchi. Most of the damage was to crops. There were rice paddies and vegetable fields that were planted close to the sea that were destroyed. Two
0: houses and two salt kilns were damaged as well. In Nakaminato, high waves prevented a boat carrying 470 bales of rice from entering the mouth of the river and continuing inland to its destination of Edo. When it couldn't reach the river, the boat dropped anchor, and as the seas got rougher, it jettisoned part of its cargo. But then the seas continually got worse. The anchor line broke and the boat was driven into the rocks, causing the loss of the rest of its cargo, which was 28 metric tons of rice, and the deaths of two of its crew.
1: Of all the descriptions of the tsunami that survive until today,
0: this incident is the
1: one that seems to go on for the longest. Most likely, the boat was really struck twice. Once by the incoming water, which kept it from entering the mouth of the river. And then it was struck a second time by the rebound of that water off of the land and the currents from the mouth of the river. And so that second wave is what drove the boat onto the rocks.
0: The headman in Miho, uh, population 300, the same one who had wondered whether the strange seas were a tsunami, evacuated the village's elderly residents and its children to a shrine on high ground. He described the unusual seas as a series of seven unusually large waves. Because Miho was relatively sheltered, the crest of the tsunami there was probably smaller than in Miyako Bay, where the shape of the land funneled the waters. The city of Tanabe
1: is on the southern end of the recorded journey of the tsunami's path. Tanabe was much larger. It had a population of about 2,600, including the mayor for the whole district. There, the tsunami flooded a government storehouse and a castle moat, and it flooded farmland around the bay.
0: This stretch of Japanese coastline covers nearly 1,000 kilometers. It's about 621 miles. At various points along that span, the crest of the tsunami... It seems to have ranged from 2 to 5 meters, or six and a half to 16 feet. So it was definitely enough to cause damage and alarm. But it was a smaller influx of water than, say, the flood from a typhoon or a very powerful storm surge.
1: Yeah, so this, although it was damaging and there was some loss of life, this is one of those things that, uh, by comparison, like a really bad storm could have had a similar or worse effect on the island. This is also much, much smaller than, for example, the tsunami that was spawned by the March 11th, 2011 earthquake that reached heights of up to 40 meters or 131 feet. And that was smaller than the tsunami that was spawned by this same earthquake when it struck North America's Pacific Northwest, which is what we are going to talk about after a brief word from a sponsor.
0: Starting your own business can be difficult, but developing your online presence does not have to be. Google and Squarespace have teamed up to give small business owners what they need to succeed online. A custom domain, a business email, and a beautiful website all in one place. With Google and Squarespace, you can stand out, look professional, and increase your team's productivity. When you create your Squarespace business website or online store, you will receive a free year of business email and professional tools from Google. It's just that simple. Visit squarespace.com slash Google to start your free trial. Use offer code WORKS, W-O-R-K-S, for 10% off your first purchase. Google and Squarespace. Make it professional. Make it beautiful.
1: Unlike in Japan, where a government that was really into record-keeping combined with a population that was highly literate to give us lots and lots of written records of the tsunami, in northwestern North America, histories were being kept at this point through oral tradition. In 1700, the Cascadia region, which encompasses what's now Northern California, all the way north to Alaska, was home to four distinct cultural language groups. The Coast Salish, the Wakashan, The the Chinookan uh, and and the Sahaptan, these encompassed a dozen distinct languages and many, many more distinct tribes and bands, all of them with their own traditions and customs and cultures and stories.
0: When the earthquake happened, this part of North America had not yet experienced sustained contact with Europeans. It would be another 70-plus years before Bruno Heseda would land in what's now Washington State, or Captain James Cook would explore Vancouver Island. Europeans started colonizing the Pacific Northwest about a century later, and it was another 50 years before European arrivals started writing down that region's oral traditions.
1: But in that roughly century and a half between first contact and the effort to document Native American and First Nations people's oral histories in Cascadia, as many as 95% of those distinct oral traditions were lost. Warfare, European-introduced diseases, loss of traditional territory to European colonists, and cultural assimilation all played a role in the loss of a whole lot of Cascadia's unwritten history.
0: However, it's clear from the symbolism in many of the surviving native stories that the native people of Cascadia, like the people of Japan, understood the connection between earthquakes and floods. There are lots of references to earthquakes and floods in their oral histories, their folklore and stories throughout the region. Stories about Thunderbird battling with whale are common among many Pacific Northwest peoples, likely drawn from the region's seismic activity and the connection between shaking ground and rushing water.
1: In some of these stories, Thunderbird sinks his talons into whale's back as they're fighting, and whale drags Thunderbird down to the bottom of the ocean. In others, Thunderbird flies into the sky with whale, uh, like holding whale, and then drops whale onto the ocean, causing a massive flood.
0: The mythology is a little bit different further to the south. For instance, the Yurok tribe, who historically lived along the southern part of Cascadia and along Klamath River and are a federally recognized tribe in California today, has a story about thunder and earthquake. Thunder went to Earthquake because the people didn't have enough to eat, thinking that if the plains became ocean, people could fish there. So Earthquake ran along the land, causing the land to sink and fill with an ocean full of salmon, whales and seals. Uh,
1: In addition to stories like these, themes of shaking and flooding and an interplay between the two are also present in masks, art, dance and ceremonies among many of Cascadia's native peoples. But apart from the more general tradition of folklore, myths, and legends, which of course are open to lots of other interpretations as well, there are also specific stories about specific earthquakes and tsunamis that have been passed down through generations.
0: Modern researchers studying the connections between native oral history and the region's seismic history have traced nine different stories told to Europeans by native peoples between 1860 and 1964 that are detailed enough to determine they probably stem from the 1700 earthquake and tsunami. They're stories that combine both flooding and shaking and describe family connections or other details that put the story into that right time period. Three of them are the stories of specific ancestors, grandparents or great-grandparents, who either saw a survivor of the 1700 earthquake or survived it themselves.
1: One of the most frequently cited was written down in 1864. A man known as Billy Blatch told James Swan the story of a tsunami, which Swan recorded in his diary on Tuesday, January 12th of that year. Swan wrote that Billy Blatch told him about water that flowed and then receded and then rose again, quote, without any swell or waves and submerged the whole of the Cape and, in fact, the whole country except the mountains. Billy Blatch's story goes on to talk about people who drifted away in their canoes as well as canoes that came down in the trees and were destroyed and lives that
0: were lost. In 1929, a woman named Agnes Matz, who was a member of the Taloa tribe, also known as the Taloa Deni Nation, told cultural anthropologist Cora A. Dubois a story about a tidal wave in Oregon. Quote, there were no white people on Earth when it happened, she said, and went on to describe a story about a grandmother warning her two grandchildren, who she had raised, to run to the top of a mountain as fast as they could. And when they looked back, they saw the water consume everything.
1: With so little surviving oral history, we can't reconstruct a point-by-point recounting of the earthquake and tsunami in Cascadia the way we did in Japan. But given how populated the coastal region from British Columbia to Northern California was, and how many native peoples made extensive use of the rivers and waterways to move inland from the coast, the only logical conclusion is that it was catastrophic. Even for those who felt the earthquake and survived by moving to higher ground, the tsunami would have destroyed homes, canoes, fishing nets, stored food, and everything else that was necessary for
0: survival. And we're gonna talk about how these two events on opposite sides of the Pacific were finally connected, but first we're gonna pause and have a little sponsor break.
1: Like so many people in our audience, learning is something that you and I constantly look forward to, which is why we really, really enjoy having subscriptions to The Great Courses Plus. There's always something new to learn. The Great Courses Plus offers this enormous library of really engaging video lectures. There are so many topics, and they're all presented by award-winning professors. You can learn more about whatever interests you. There's the Vikings. There's World War II. There's even uh, genealogy and photography. I have plenty of things queued up to fill my own uh, learning desires we recommend watching The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague. It explores the impact that the plague had on 14th century Europe and on Western civilization as a whole. Uh, I mean, we, we know that the plague killed up to 50% of the population. What all did that affect? The answer is everything. And it really walks through all the ways that losing that many people really changed life. With The Great Courses Plus, stream as many different lectures as you want anytime, anywhere from a smartphone, laptop, tablet, or TV. We want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus today because they are giving our listeners a special offer. It is an entire month of unlimited access to all of their lectures for free. So start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash stuff. Now we will get back to our story. Here is what we know today. At 9 p.m. local time on January 26, 1700, the Cascadia subduction zone ruptured along its 680-mile or 1,094-kilometer length. This fault system is off the coast of North America and from Northern California today all the way north into British Columbia today, People living on the coast both felt the quake and experienced the tsunami that followed. It only would have taken about 20 minutes for the water displaced toward the North American coast to actually reach it. Researchers estimate that the tsunami that struck was up to 50 feet or 15 meters high. Then, about 10 hours later, water displaced in the opposite direction reached Japan, reaching heights of about 16 feet or 5 meters this wave of water uh, traveled from northeast to
0: southwest down the Japanese coast for the next 8 to 10 hours. It took a really long time for anyone to connect these two events together, even after the efforts we talked about at the very beginning of the show. And one big reason is that for much of the 20th century, geologists thought the faults in this part of the world weren't really capable of producing a very powerful earthquake. They would max out at around magnitude 7, and that wouldn't necessarily be powerful enough to spawn the tsunami that ultimately reached Japan.
1: Yeah, 7 is still a pretty big earthquake, Yeah, but not not the size needed to spawn this level of destruction. But throughout the 1980s, researchers basically trying to settle disputes about whether Cascadia was capable of producing great earthquakes uh, started to find more and more evidence that incredibly large earthquakes really had struck the region in the past.
0: Most of this research studied the lay of the land in the Pacific Northwest and the remains of forests. In an earthquake of this size and type, land can suddenly drop. And when land on the coast or otherwise near water drops, the water rushes in to fill that void. So when a coastal forest suddenly drops, the water that rushes in kills the trees and creates a ghost forest. As researchers started looking for evidence of whether Cascadia could spawn great earthquakes, they started finding these sorts of ghost forests.
1: It wasn't as though these ghost forests were a total surprise. Researchers had already found plenty of submerged logs and stumps, along with the hearths uh, and other archaeological evidence of destroyed homes of native peoples. But for a long time, the conventional wisdom was that these trees had been killed through a slow rise in sea levels, not an earthquake and a sudden drop of the land.
0: But other bits of evidence started to point toward the earthquake theory. There were layers of silt that could only have come in along a tsunami. And entire marshes were buried and preserved under layers of silt and sand that could only have arrived there suddenly, not part of a gradual process. In 1996, after more than a decade
1: of piecing together all this evidence, Japanese researchers first connected the tsunami that struck the island of Honshu in 1700 with the earthquake that happened on the same day in the Pacific Northwest. By that point, radiocarbon dating had already pinpointed the date of the creation of these ghost forests in Cascadia as sometime between 1695 and 1720. In 1997, the date was further refined to having happened sometime between August 1699 and May 1700. So between the end of one growth phase and the beginning of the next for these trees. What they did was they compared the ghost trees roots, uh, which they, they excavated for this purpose to the rings of neighbor, of neighboring trees that had survived since before 1700.
0: And you can read so much about the science behind this earthquake and tsunami in the Orphan Tsunami of 1700, Japanese clues to a parent earthquake in North America, which was prepared by the U.S. Geological Survey in conjunction with the Geological Survey of Japan. And we will have a link to that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it's one of those books you you can buy it and find it in libraries, but it's also a public domain piece because it was created uh, by government sources that you can read on the internet for free. Aside from solving this mystery of what caused the orphan tsunami, this research is incredibly important to actual life today in the Pacific Northwest. The idea that a magnitude 9 earthquake is possible or maybe even inevitable has a huge impact uh, into the conversation around how resilient buildings and bridges uh, and other structures need to be to withstand the level of seismic activity that's possible in the region. Not to be alarming. <laughs> but a lot of things built there were built before anyone figured this
0: out. That is for sure. Uh, my two of my siblings live in the Pacific Northwest. I lived there when I was a kid. And I know that they have, I don't know if they realize it's related to this specific geological survey and research that was done, but they have become suddenly aware of like, oh, we've gotten some notices about maybe looking at fortifications of our homes.
1: Yeah. It was, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before it was within the last couple of years, uh, there was a whole wave of articles about this whole thing. And I'm not sure exactly what spawned those articles, because at that point, I mean, this, this, this book about the 1700 earthquake and tsunami had been out for a while. Um, and it, it was one of those things that I read and I thought about my brother and sister-in-law who at that <laughs> point, I mean, they live, they live in, in Seattle and at, the, at that point they were living, uh, in, in a condo that was sort of under a highway bridge. Yeah. And my sister-in-law had said to me when I came to visit them, she was like, when the big one happens, that's going to fall on us. Uh, <laughs> and so I remember reading all these articles and being like, you guys got to go now. You need to <laughs> go now. Uh, so yeah, that's, it's, it's now building standards are taking into account the idea that yes, there, uh, magnitude seven is not the upper limit
0: here. Magnitude
1: nine plus is.
0: Do you also have a little bit of listener mail, whether it be about building fortification or not? <laughs> yeah,
1: I have, I have a clarification and a correction. Uh, the, cl- the f- clarification uh, stems from an email we got from listener Robert, and I'm not going to read it. Uh, just cause there's, there's various details in there, but, uh, Robert is, has been a therapist for many years and wrote about, uh, our episode on John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, um, and how we described his methodically planning, uh, as being evidence that he was not, uh, mentally ill. And that did not come off the way that I intended it to in the episode. I was definitely not trying to say that people who have mental illnesses uh, aren't able to learn or plan things because that's false. Um, and I also wasn't trying to say that uh, the fact that he was planning meant that he was not mentally ill. What I was attempting to get at was that there is this perception in a lot of history books, especially older history books, that John Brown was, quote, a crazy person who had this wild idea that he took off on suddenly, uh, which is not accurate. Like he definitely put a lot of planning and research um, into guerrilla warfare and things like that. And he implemented that into this whole plan. So my apologies for not articulating that very well in that episode. Uh, the correction that I have comes in from Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, Dear Tracy and Holly, In your 19 September 2016 episode about Mary Alice Nelson, a.k.a. Molly Spotted Elk, you discussed some of the challenges she had in getting Johnny to the United States at the beginning of World War II. You noted that Johnny was a socialist, which you argued caused problems because of, quote, France's Socialist Party, which Johnny was a part of, had at one point considered uniting with Germany's Socialist Party, which became the Nazi Party. This is untrue. Germany's Socialist Party, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, SPD, was wholly unconnected to the Nazi Party and, in fact, stood in stark opposition to it. The Nazi Party, full-name National Socialist German Workers' Party, uh, NSDAP, evolved out of the German Workers' Party, DAP, a party at the opposite end of the political spectrum from the SPD. The Nazis were a far-right party, while the SPD was a party on the left, if not as far left as the Communist Party of Germany, KPD. This sort of basic error is not just unacceptable, but also dangerous, as it support, supports far too widespread conflation between Nazism and socialism. Best, Elizabeth. So thank you, Elizabeth, for that correction. Uh, the My big source of research for this was a book that has gone back to the library, so I cannot go back through it to confirm exactly what I either misread or garbled when I wrote down my notes. Um, it was definitely brought up as an issue that his involvement with the Socialist Party in France and that party's connection to Germany was a problem for getting his visa. Uh, so at some point between that knowledge and what we said in the episode, I went astray and I apologize for that, too. That's Correction Corner for today's listener mail. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at in History. Our Tumblr is com, or also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Uh You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com and learn about all kinds of stuff, including earthquakes and tsunami. We have articles on how both of those things work. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com for show notes where we will link to that uh, paper about the tsunami that we talked about today. You, we have an archive of every episode we've ever done, some frequently asked questions that we answer because we are asked them frequently. You can, So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mistinhistory.com
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.